you, Doug. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. So we've been living with the coronavirus pandemic in the United States for about half a year now. And as we all know, social distancing measures have impacted broad swaths of the economy, resulting in decreased income for many Americans. As federal stimulus dries up, as state restrictions on foreclosures and evictions expire, a wave of consumer bankruptcies is likely in the next 12 months. So today's program is delivered very much with that in mind. Now, last year, the American Bankruptcy Institute published a report on its recommendations to make personal bankruptcy more accessible for, for financially struggling Americans. And among the topics the ABI report addressed was mediation. Specifically, this report found that mediation could be particularly effective in resolving non-dischargeability complaints, loss mitigation, foreclosure issues, and other debtor-creditor issues that are central to consumer bankruptcy cases. So with, with that in mind, today's program is actually the first of a two-part mediation program that the bankruptcy law section of the BBA is offering. Today's session is going to set the table. We will focus on the fundamental concepts of mediation, including when, where, and how to use mediation effectively. And our panelists will discover how mediation can be cost-effective in resolving key creditor issues in consumer reorganization and liquidation cases. Now we hope that after uh, attending today's program that you then sign up for the extended program on October 20th. This is going to be a fantastic four hour CLE program with hypotheticals, role playing, um, that's going to do a deep dive into mediation, mediation strategies and the mediation process. Our esteemed panel is going to be back on October 20th and they will also be joined by practitioners Ann White and Kate Nicholson and also John Rao of the National Consumer Law Center. So with that, I'd like to just briefly introduce our panel, which really these people need no introduction. I'm sure everyone knows them, but um, starting with the Honorable Judge Joan Feeney. Judge Feeney has been a bankruptcy judge in the District of Massachusetts from 1992 to 2019, where she authored over 500 judicial opinions. She's mediated and settled cases on a variety of bankruptcy, commercial litigation, business disputes, and a wide variety of other matters. Judge Feeney is currently a neutral with JAMS, the world's largest alternative dispute resolution provider. In addition, we have the Honorable Judge Lewis Kornreich. Judge Kornreich served as a bankruptcy judge in the districts of Maine and Delaware for 14 years, and he was a sought after judicial mediator in bankruptcy and the US district courts. His article, Taking Mediation Online, The Practicalities and Pitfalls, has recently appeared in the June 2020 edition of the ABI Journal. I encourage you all to read that. It's a fantastic article. Judge Kornreich is presently counsel at the law firm of Bernstein Schur in Maine, where he works as a registered mediator in the Southern District of New York, the District of Delaware, and the District of Massachusetts. And finally, John Lockney of the law firm Nutter McLennan and Fish 
advises clients in distress situations, both inside and outside of bankruptcy. John has extensive experience representing clients in mediation and other alternative dispute resolution programs. And in addition, John has created and taught mediation programs uh, across the region. So with that, I would like to turn, get, it, get the ball rolling with Judge Kornreich. Thank you very much, David. Welcome everyone. On behalf of the panel, uh, we're very glad that you're here. We're very glad that you are interested in, in mediation, and we hope that you will consider attending the four-hour program. I have one further introductory note uh, about uh, uh, John Lognane. Uh, David mentioned the uh, Consumer uh, Bankruptcy uh, Commission of ABI and its recommendation that mediation may be helpful. You should know that uh, John uh, drafted uh, the recommendations of the mediation committee of ABI for that commission and currently serves as chairman of the uh, mediation committee for, for ABI. So uh, Judge Feeney and I, of course, have our judicial experience and mediation experience, uh, but John has been very, very active as, as an attorney in the field as well. Um, I, I want to uh, discuss the uh, some of the materials that are on, on the slide and a few more that are not on the slide. Um, let me tell you what you need to know. Um, and when I say need to know, I'm not going to tell you everything that's in these particular rules and statutes, but I'm going to tell you to go and read them at your, at your leisure. Uh, the first is Federal Rule uh, Bankruptcy 716, specifically uh, C, 2, I, L, and P. Now this rule does not provide for mediation per se. It may be the rule that enables a court uh, to order mediation. Uh, there's some dispute about that. But uh, the rule does allow for uh, special uh, procedures and among those special procedures, those of us in the field uh, see mediation as being uh, the primary one, particularly to help bankruptcy courts in consumer matters. The next rule that you ought to look at is local bankruptcy rule of, uh, of the court, uh, bankruptcy court in Massachusetts, 716-1A. This provides for mediation on the consent of the parties and you should look at Appendix 7 uh, to the local bankruptcy rules. Appendix 7 is critical. It contains the uh, confidentiality provision in mediation, which we'll discuss a bit more in a bit more detail on another slide, uh, but it sets forth the meaning of confidentiality in the District of Massachusetts in bankruptcy um, mediation mediations. I will also call your attention uh, to uh, Massachusetts uh, General Laws Chapter 233, Section 23C. State law controls mediations in bankruptcy proceedings. And state law in this provision defines uh, who is a mediator. And it's very important um, because 
confidentiality, which is critical to mediation, which we'll discuss on another slide, is dependent upon the qualification of the mediator in a Massachusetts under Massachusetts law. So if one is not qualified as a mediator, confidentiality would be in doubt. Now, this section provides four different ways that one may qualify as a mediator. First, a 30-hour training program. Second, four years of experience as a mediator. Third, accountability to an organization uh, that uh, is a primary provider of mediation, such as JAMS, uh, and as you just heard, Judge, Judge Feeney is affiliated with, with JAMS. And the fourth is by special court appointment. One of the things that we hope to do by providing this program and the four-hour program is to give practitioners in Massachusetts uh, the opportunity to serve as pro bono mediators and the opportunity to qualify to be on the Massachusetts Registry of Mediators. Uh, to be on that registry, one must qualify under Massachusetts law. But we do have uh, the uh, appointment by the court provision. And we are hopeful uh, that if the need arises due to COVID or otherwise for additional mediators on a, an emergency basis, uh, that the bankruptcy court may consider uh, the appointment of people who have gone through our program and who may possess other qualifications which may be shy of, uh, of the 30-hour uh, training program and so forth. So we are uh, providing this educational opportunity to practitioners so that they will have, so that you will have the opportunity to serve uh, as mediators, possibly, uh, depending on uh, the court, depending on local rule, depending on, on local needs. And we also hope that we may inspire some of you uh, to seek out uh, other opportunities for training so that you may qualify under the statute um, fully. So uh, with that, uh, I think we might move on to the next slide. Thank, thank you, Judge Cornrush, for, for uh, setting the table so well. The next slide is mediation and bankruptcy cases. Just want to preface it by saying that the report that both David mentioned and Judge Cornrush mentioned uh, that was presented to the ABI Consumer Commission, uh, Judge uh, was a co-author of that report. So uh, I appreciate the attribution, but I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to lie. He had a substantial part in bringing those issues to the Consumer Commission. And we're pleased that they entertained it and uh, incorporated reference to it in their final report, which you can find online. Um, this slide, mediation and bankruptcy cases, our impetus for doing this session was the realization that because of the pandemic, many, many issues are going to start coming down the pike that will be unduly influencing individuals and consumers in the months ahead. 
um, some of those issues may be so dramatic as to force folks into seeking bankruptcy relief, and it's quite possible that the bankruptcy courts could become overwhelmed dealing with uh, many consumer issues. And in those settings, mediation might be a relief valve, both for the participants in the proceedings as well as the uh, judicial system as a whole. It, it is well, it's worth mentioning at the outset that mediation is not limited to use after the filing of a formal bankruptcy case. And we certainly hope that you take away from today's session the notion that the skills we're going to be talking about today and also on October 20th are quite uh, applicable to being used before a formal filing of a bankruptcy case. In other words, um, you don't necessarily need a formal federal bankruptcy case in order to uh, seek out a mediator and find a different path forward uh, to a solution other than a typical legal solution. And why might you do that? Well, the, 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 the reasons why are really summarized on this slide. Uh, what are the benefits of mediation? The benefits of mediation are that it provides an opportunity for parties to control their own destiny and try to find a resolution that works for each of them, um, apart from the decision of a third party uh, fact finder uh, judge imposing a decision. So there's the complete flexibility of party control. Um, as we talked to the COVID task force about the possibility of doing this, we realized that although mediation is very well understood and utilized in the commercial setting, its use or potential applicability in the consumer setting was not as well understood. Mediation is not arbitration. Mediation is consensual. It, it provides parties the opportunity to control and reach their own resolution if they want to. Um, with that comes flexibility. Uh, in a typical legal proceeding, uh, positions will be articulated, the law will be what the law is, and a judge will be forced to make whatever decision the law and the facts support. Um, and um, you know, if the decision is not the correct decision, folks can appeal and, uh, and the litigation can continue. But um, there's not a lot of flexibility around uh, varying the law or varying the facts to coming to a legal conclusion. The two judges can speak a lot better about that than I can, but I certainly have seen as, a, as an advocate that um, the law and the facts control in most, in most cases. In a mediation, um, there's a lot more opportunity to uh, consider things that would not be considered in a courtroom. And uh, the ability to consider those things does lead to the possibility of an outcome that might be different than a legal outcome could be obtained in court. Also, expedited resolution. Um, mediation can occur on a, on, a, on a time frame that the parties uh, determine uh, together with the mediator, as opposed to whatever the timetable the court may be on, which as I mentioned at the outset, could be uh, less than ideal in the months ahead as um, the expected influx of cases hits the courts. Uh, finally, uh, cost, uh, especially in the consumer co context, cost is a significant issue. Um, asking uh, consumers to incur the cost of, of litigation is, is a tall order. Um, as Judge Kornreich mentioned, the possibility exists here that the ranks of the pro bono mediation bar could, could expand, thus providing uh, a potentially cost-effective solution to 
folks that are seeking uh, opportunities to remediate it, resolution of their issues. Um, in terms of timing, I mentioned that at the outset as well. Mediation can certainly occur during a bankruptcy case, and even then, at the beginning, middle, or the end of the case, uh, it's up to the parties to determine, but it certainly can occur as well uh, before the case is filed. Um, so why don't we go to the next slide at this point? Uh, well, Judge Feeney's on mute, but uh, yeah, Judge, yeah. yes. I've yep. got it. Um, there are numerous advantages of, of mediation. John covered several of them, and I'll add a few points. Um, the first control, the parties, counsel, and the mediator will agree on procedures for conducting the uh, mediation. And and they have the ability to, um, to discuss and agree on special procedures and the ability to time the mediation as well. So for example, in a, in a consumer context, a homeowner and a servicer and lender, even before the filing of a um, bankruptcy case, whether that's a 13 or, or a seven, can engage in, in mediation in, um, in, instead of filing um, a bankruptcy case. They, if there is a bankruptcy case, the, the parties and the mediator um, have the ability to time um, the mediation either um, at the outset of the case, um, if there is a contested matter or adversary proceeding before discovery, in the middle of discovery, or even after discovery um, before a trial. So the party's um, control um, is, is quite significant. And ultimately, it's the party's settlement. They control the terms of the settlement. In terms of certainty, the, um, upon a settlement, the case is resolved. Uh, subject to um, any requirement to request bankruptcy court approval of a settlement under uh, 9019. So there is, there is closure in, in a mediation once an agreement is uh, reached. Confidentiality is, is an important aspect of mediation. Um, everything said in the mediation is confidential. The mediator's um, information learned during the mediation is confidential. Um, the mediator doesn't talk to the bankruptcy judge about what happened during the mediation. We'll cover this in more depth in, in a few uh, more minutes. The process is completely confidential. In terms of costs, obviously uh, mediation can be much less expensive than um, uh, litigation, including trials and potential appeals. Generally, a mediator will spend about five to 10 hours preparing for the case and, and then um, eight hours generally in a, in a typical session. Creativity is an important advantage of, of mediation. The, as John mentioned, um, a settlement is not an up or down win or loss. 
um, parties can um, can agree on creative solutions um, and factor those into the uh, settlement terms. Um, finally, the settlement does relate um, does um, result in enclosure and a dispute um, among parties can be finally determined and releases exchanged with all litigation coming to, to a stop. And finally, um, catharsis is an aspect of mediation that is often over, overlooked. Um, parties and counsel um, can vent during a mediation they can make irrelevant views known if those views are important to them. Um, providing um, information um, during a mediation is not limited to admissible evidence like in an arbitration or in, in litigation. So um, the parties have an ability to voice their um, interests, problems, and, and, and their goals in, in a cathartic way. Good morning again, this is Judge Kornreich. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you very much. All right, I, I uh, am going to share um, some comments about mandatory uh, mediation. First question you see on the slide is can, can mediation be compelled by a bankruptcy judge? The answer is yes and no. I, I say yes because bankruptcy judges in Massachusetts have ordered uh, mediation and I, I think that has occurred largely um, without controversy whether or not those mediations were successful. Um, usually mediation in this district is by consent and local rule 16 opens with, with the consent of the parties. However, as I mentioned briefly before, uh, federal rule uh, 7016C2ILNP uh, allows for uh, special procedures and other ways. And, and judges uh, may be convinced by parties or may be convinced on their own in appropriate cases that special procedures or other ways, including mediation, uh, would be uh, the best way to go. And on that basis, uh, the judge may enter an order. It is our hope that the uh, bankruptcy judges of the District of Massachusetts will consider uh, mandatory mediation in appropriate cases under the guidelines of the ABI uh, Consumer Commission in appropriate cases. And, and we think for all the reasons that uh, have, have been mentioned by John and Judge Feeney uh, that uh, mediation will be appropriate, uh, particularly if we have a tsunami of uh, consumer cases. So uh, I think we may anticipate seeing more mandatory mediation in, in uh, consumer cases. Uh, another comment about the Bankruptcy Commission and my own personal view, and that is having a standing order with a reference 
uh, to mediation in every consumer case may be counterproductive because the mediation would then be viewed as a pass-through uh, by counsel uh, on their way to, to litigation. Um, this is a topic to be discussed at, uh, at another time, uh, but uh, we think that both, both consensual uh, mediation and mandatory mediation have a place in consumer cases at uh, this moment. Um, a side note uh, that uh, uh, Judge Feeney has asked me to mention is that in the District of Delaware and in several other districts, every adversary proceeding for preference and fraudulent transfer goes to mediation. In some districts, every consumer bankruptcy goes to uh, mediation. We don't have that in Massachusetts. Uh, that's something for the bar and the bench to discuss. Our purpose today is to get you ready to either be counsel in a mediation in a consumer case or to assume the responsibilities of acting as a mediator in a consumer case. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, whether um, counsel and the parties agree on going to mediation or whether they are mandated to go to mediation, they should move um, the court for um, entry of an order referring the dispute to mediation and most importantly, request a suspension of all deadlines in a pending case, whether it's a case or an adversary proceeding or a contested matter. Um, the um, confidentiality of the mediation uh, session and all um, preparatory sessions and communications um, leading up to and during it should uh, be the subject of a provision in, in the proposed order as well um, as a term that nothing said during the mediation can be introduced um, into evidence and indeed a, a broad provision that parties are, are not permitted to disclose um, what happened during the mediation um, and, and indeed that the mediator will keep everything confidential and we only report to the court um, a settlement or, or no settlement. Um, most mediators will also insist on a provision in the proposed order that the mediator cannot be co uh, compelled to testify as a witness. I always make sure that that's in the proposed order. Um, the, the parties should um, advise the court um, as to the time frame of of the mediation and, and ask for a um, sufficient period of, of suspension of deadlines to, um, um, to enable the mediation to, to conclude. Um, there are many different types of, of uh, medi mediation appointments. Um, mo most typically um, parties hire a um, provider of, of ADR uh, services. And as Judge Cornrice list uh, stated, Massachusetts has a list of approved mediators. That doesn't mean you can't uh, pick some, something else, but if, if you are looking for a mediator, that's um, 
that's a good that's a good start. In Massachusetts, a, um, a a mediator on the court list is required to do three pro bono mediations per year. So that's a good resource, and the clerk of court keeps um, records as to um, as to the number of mediations that um, that the the mediator has conducted on a on a pro bono basis. A number of courts um, have judicially annexed court uh, mediation programs. Uh, for example, in the District of Rhode Island, the United States District Court has um, a court, court annexed uh, program where um, an attorney is employed by the clerk's office and in the bankruptcy court, if you request the bankruptcy judge to refer you to that court annex program, um, Judge, Judge Finkel will, will do so. Judge Feeney, may I make a comment at this point? I just had one, one final thing. First Circuit Court of Appeals does have mandatory um, mediation for uh, bankruptcy appeals. So if you have a case in the First Circuit, you will be receiving a notice that you must participate in that court annex mediation program um, administered by um, Judge Patrick King. Go ahead, Judge Cornish. Thank you. Uh, with respect to pro bono mediations, you know, we're all practitioners and we're all trying to earn our living practicing law or doing ADR or whatever. Um, and I mentioned earlier that one of the goals of this program is to uh, gain interest uh, on the part of the bar in participating in mediation or even serving as a mediator in consumer cases. Consumer cases uh, cry out for pro bono mediation. Um, most cases are very thin. Most cases have few assets in the estate and most parties have limited assets to pay for fees. So I, it would be misleading to suggest to you that, that uh, doing consumer mediation is a way to get rich. Uh, it's a way to provide public service and I thought I'd add that comment. And it's also a good way to hone your mediation skills if, um, if, if you'd like to include mediation as an aspect of, of your practice. I had fun, one final word on the mediation agreement. Um, the best practice um, for parties um, agreeing to mediate is to do a separate mediation um, agreement, reference that in the proposed um, mediation um, re referral order and um, uh, agree to um, cooperate in good faith, um, agree on confidentiality and, and the other provisions for, um, for timing and, and, and other terms, and also provide a waiver of the liability and um, ability of the mediator to be called as, as a witness. So it, it may be somewhat duplicative of the mediation referral order, but it, it is prudent to enter into a separate mediation agreement. If I could just follow up uh, on those points and 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 note that you know it's as everybody on the on the on the session probably knows it's quite possible to go through law school and to practice for many 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 years without ever actually being introduced to the topic of mediation. Um, I think I had been practicing for way too many years before I actually took any formal training in mediation, 
although I feel that in my commercial bankruptcy setting, um, I basically had been mediating all along or using the, the similar skills as a mediator. Um, so I think what we're to follow up on the, on the two points made, uh, this is another way to potentially help people solve problems in addition to the remedies available and the avenues available in the court system strictly. And we do hope that the public service nature of this um, um, spreads and we can help folks weather the storms created by the pandemic in, in the months ahead in the best way possible. This next slide, I'm gonna to have to cover very quickly just in the interest of time. I will guarantee that we will dig down into this deeper during the four hour session in October. But just very briefly, the mediator has to be neutral. Probably seems like an obvious point, but um, it's, it's essential that the mediator not have any um, allegiances to one side or the other. Quite frankly, you'll be an ineffective mediator if you're not neutral. Um, the mediator also has to be the right person for the job. Uh, there's different types of mediators for different types of situations. And I think we'll talk about that more in October. Um, there are standards. The ABI book on mediation that was referenced at the beginning of the program has uh, a good chapter about uh, me uh, mediation ethics, which I highly recommend. Um, in terms of the parties, um, there's an interesting question about good faith participation and who determines whether or not the participation is in good faith or not. I believe Judge Kornreich has written about this topic and has an article published, I believe, in the ABI journal, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the, the mediator is not an arbiter of whether somebody is in good faith or not good faith. A, a mediator is not a judge. Um, so uh, a good mediator will try to get the parties to use the time constructively. Um, but if it's obvious that one party is not participating in good faith or not, there are strategies for dealing with that. Um, but a mediator typically is not going to be the one uh, uh, making a finding of bad faith. That's just not the mediator's job. So I, th I suggest we move along just in the interest of time and with the promise that we'll drill down into those subjects more in October. So uh, moving on to the next slide, methods. Um, I know we've covered some of this already, but you may be asking yourself, what, what makes mediation essential if it's just a question of the two parties sitting and talking to each other? Well, the, what makes it essential is um, the two parties may not have very good lines of communication between them. Um, if they could solve their own problem between them themselves, of course, there'd be no need for contemplation of a bankruptcy case or the actual invocation of bankruptcy. Um, but the, the reason mediation can be successful is because the third party neutral uh, can use the time with the parties to understand what their interests are, not just their positions, which we'll talk about more in, in a few minutes, but uh, learn to build trust with both sides and learn to try to facilitate uh, what various options might exist for the parties and what various alternatives may exist for the parties. At the end of the day, mediation and getting to a mediated result is all about doing better than what's called BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If a party can do better than its BATNA uh, through some other means, then it, it will do that. Because <laughs> the party's always gonna do what's in its own self-interest. Um, but sometimes uh, a party will realize that um, its best alternative to a negotiated agreement 
um, is actually not that good. And perhaps it, it makes more time to spend time in the mediation room, virtual or physical, and you know, try to come to terms on a negotiated settlement. Uh, so mediators uh, try to build trust. They try to uh, be facilitative. Um, some mediators will tend to be more on the evaluative side. And I guess we'll drill down on that more in October as well. But uh, essentially, mediators are, in, are interested in understanding the interests of each party, not just the positions of each party, and uh, trying to uh, facilitate a, a resolution that, that makes uh, both sides um, uh, if not happy, then at least comfortable that they're doing better than they could do outside of a mediation. Okay, so move on from there. All right, thank you very much. Um, all of us have mentioned uh, confidentiality to some extent uh, uh, thus far. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on it. Um, it's a topic that uh, would consume uh, several hours, and we will devote more time to it during the four-hour session, but let me be quick and let me give you some thoughts. First, the definition. Uh, there is a distinction between privilege and confidentiality. Privilege is usually conveyed by statute, uh, rule, or uh, case authority. Um, it provides a right to withhold evidence. Uh, to give you common examples, the doctor-patient relationship and the lawyer-client relationship. The doctor or the lawyer will refuse to testify on grounds of privilege. However, it is the patient and the lawyer's client um, that actually uh, possess the privilege and have the right of waiver. So the duty is implied on the doctor or, or the lawyer, uh, but the, the privilege uh, really belongs to the, uh, to the individual. Um, it is a right possessed by the patient or the client in the examples I've given you. The difference uh, between privilege and confidentiality is that while confidentiality also arises by statute rule or case law, it, it also arises specifically under contract. And this is why uh, Judge Feeney uh, has emphasized the importance of the uh, mediation agreement and incorporating the mediation agreement uh, into an order because then uh, there is no ambiguity. Confidentiality is established by contract as well as by the Massachusetts statute and the appendix uh, to the Massachusetts bankruptcy rules. Uh, it's a belt and spender approach, suspender approach. So it's, it's very, very important uh, to, uh, to the idea of confidentiality, to have it incorporated in the mediation agreement. And I would point out that it's not just the parties that should sign the mediation agreement, it's the mediator as well, because the mediator would fall under the confidentiality provisions of the agreement by contract if signed by um, the mediator. Um, I, will, I will move on and simply say that there is no clear uh, federal rule on, on confidentiality. In Massachusetts, confidentiality is guided uh, by the statute I mentioned before. It's section uh, uh, 23C of chapter 233. I advise you to read it. Again, I, I will refer to appendix seven of the local bankruptcy rules. 
uh, and uh, suggest that you, you look at the confidentiality uh, provisions there. A final word about Federal Rule of Evidence 408. Most of you in the audience are familiar with 408 because all of you uh, engage in negotiations and you're all uh, uh, cognizant of, of, the, of the idea that uh, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, the problem is, is that Rule 48 is not as secure as Las Vegas. Um, rule 48 may not include the mediator because it refers to parties. And uh, there are exceptions. And the exceptions may be broad enough to include a good faith exception so that if the mediation is challenged on the basis of good faith, uh, then uh, it may be possible that uh, uh, things that uh, were said uh, or tendered in the mediation may not be uh, protected under 408. So do not rely simply on 408. Rely on a well-crafted uh, confidentiality provision. Everybody on this panel has a well-crafted confidentiality provision, and each one of us would be happy to share it with you if you ask us. Um, so uh, I, um, I, I'll make one last uh, point about, about good faith. In the confidentiality provision that the parties agree upon, they may choose to have exceptions. One of them may be a good faith exception, so that if there is a challenge in court, that things uh, may be uh, uh, put in evidence, which might not otherwise be put in evidence. Personally, um, I, I do not think such an exception is a good idea, uh, but I just put it out there that you do have some control. Thank you. And with that, we should move on to the next slide. I'm going to provide an overview of the phases of, of mediation, and there are three. The pre-mediation session period, the mediation itself, and the post-mediation session crafting of an agreement uh, stage. The, the overriding theme of these three phases is that um, the mediator is not a judge, as John um, emphasized, and cannot order parties, cannot order counsel. Everything must be done uh, with consensus and agreement. And the mediator's role is to simply help counsel and the parties come to an end of, of the litigation. So in the first phase, um, pre-mediation session, the mediator and counsel um, discuss the timing of the mediation, um, the terms of the uh, mediation order and agreement and any special protocols that the parties um, um, wish, wish to agree on. The mediation um, first phase usually takes between five to 10 hours. And, and I expect um, to speak with um, counsel jointly and separately during this um, mediation phase. I will discuss with them uh, my review of pleadings in the case. I will ask them to submit a confidential uh, pre-mediation statement where um, I don't expect um, legal brief or argument. I expect to understand what the attorneys and the parties think a good settlement would look like and, and why is it that they haven't been able to reach a settlement on 
their own. So the, the preliminary phase is an often overlooked important phase of, of mediation. Um, during the mediation session, um, most mediators will conduct a brief joint session of parties and counsel at which um, uh, the mediator will explain in particular for the parties the conduct of the mediation, um, what to expect on, on the day of mediation, and, um, and any other uh, answer any other questions that, that the parties or counsel may have. I do not ask counsel to make an opening statement. If they'd like to, um, I, I will tell them there is no need because I expect that everyone will have been prepared as I am. And I find that opening statements often cause further bad blood, entrench parties in their um, positions and are, and are really um, un, unproductive. After the brief joint session, I will engage in individual caucuses for most of the day. The first few individual caucuses, which I have, um, with um, parties and counsel is to fill in any gaps in my understanding of the facts, the party's um, history, and listening to them, anything that they would like to tell me to understand what their views of, of settlement are. Later in the day, I do engage in some evaluation of, of the party's position. Um, and a, a mediator, is not just a facilitator and, 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 and a person who brings messages back and forth um, um, to, to the parties. It's very important that the mediator explain potential outcomes to the parties, um, which, which often they have heard from their counsel, but it's often helpful to hear that from, um, from the mediator as well. Uh, finally, when we do reach uh, the terms of an agreement, we rejoin in a joint um, session and, um, and I will assist the parties in, in, in um, reaching a, a term sheet. I don't let parties and counsel leave a mediation session without at least a term sheet. A full-blown settlement agreement can be done later. Um, but a term sheet is essential um, at the conclusion of, of the mediation session itself. And finally, um, it's important that counsel in an um, individual bankruptcy case understand that um, sometimes if the um, estate representative is a party to the uh, mediation, um, bankruptcy court approval of the settlement is required um, and uh, compliance with Rule 9019, notice and an opportunity to object are re required. How often, however, uh, for example, in an exception to discharge action where a creditor is um, seeking a determination that the debtor's debt is, um, should not be discharged, a voluntary dismissal after a mediation settlement is appropriate without the necessity of, of court approval. I think I just explained everything in this slide, so we can. Um, I think we can move to the to the next next slide. Um, 
Uh, Lou, we need to uh, un unmute you. Did we miss a slide, John, for you? Uh, I, I think. I just think in the I to skip it because I covered everything in that slide. In the all right, so let's let's move on to attorney-client relationships. Um, I've said that um, in every case, in every mediation case that I've handled over the last twenty years on the bench and off the bench, um, there have been issues between client and counsel. Um, many mediations have started because attorneys for both sides or all sides in a multi-party case have come to me and said, uh, our, our clients are impossible. We need uh, neutral intervention, uh, not so much between and among contesting parties, but between and among counsel and clients. It's a difficult problem. It's particularly difficult in consumer cases. And one of the ways to uh, improve um, the situation is to educate the client. And this involves both the creditor and the debtor in consumer cases. Um, they are generally ignorant of the nuances of bankruptcy practice that all of us understand. It's also true of counsel in consumer cases. Not every lawyer representing a debtor or representing a creditor has vast bankruptcy experience. So uh, there are expectations that cannot be met and will not be met uh, in a mediation because of the requirements of the code. So it's a good idea uh, for the lawyer to, media, uh, to, to educate the client, and it's, a, it's an opportunity during a mediation uh, to use the mediator to educate the parties. And this can be done in a neutral fashion so that uh, the, the uh, attorney-client relationship stressed, stress may be, may be minimized. It's also important that the mediator uh, that the parties have selected uh, not uh, um, do anything that would uh, uh, impair the attorney-client relationship, even in situations where there's an impossible client or an impossible attorney, it's very important uh, to maintain uh, that uh, relationship. Uh, so uh, conflicts between lawyer and client must be resolved before conflicts between parties may be resolved. Let's move on to the next slide. Next slide we've mentioned a few times and I'm gonna cover it extremely quickly, which is interests are not positions. Positions are, um, uh, are uh, stated in a legal proceeding and fought about. Uh, in a mediation, it's critical for the mediator to figure out what the underlying interests are of each party and try to figure out uh, in which ways those interests might be shared, in which ways do they differ, and what solutions might be available to uh, bring together the common interests uh, to get the party to a resolution. Um, for those interested, I highly recommend this book, um, and specifically chapter three, which is focus on interests, not positions. 
Uh, so if you're just dialing into this, it's getting to yes, which is approaching its 40th birthday. Um, a l large part of this book underlies the uh, mediation practice that most mediators follow these days, and I highly recommend it. We'll talk about more. Uh, we'll talk more about that topic again in October as well. So um, the next slide is strategies for effective mediation. Um, the, uh, uh, the what what a, a key mediator does is understands uh, what the what the common interests are, uh, understands what alternatives exist for each party, understands what options might exist, uh, asks open-ended questions um, to try to get parties to um, um, come to an agreement, um, basically out of their self-interest, not not to not to sacrifice. Um, um, out of a concession to the other side, but to uh, sacrifice uh, or modify its position out of its own interest. Um, sometimes people think about alternatives as being um, developed away from the table and options as being developed on the table. So um, I mentioned before Batner, outside of the province, uh, outside of the company of the other party, uh, a mediator would want to talk to one party about what that party's alternatives are if a deal cannot be struck. And the same thing with the other party. Um, so each party needs to understand what its alternatives are if it can't get to a deal. But in the room or in the common setting, um, uh, the, the conversation should facilitate around what the options are for these people to try to uh, get to a deal that will, will get them uh, to a solution. Uh, I know we're running short on time, so let's get on to the next slide. I'll be very, very quick. Um, there's a list here. I'm going to go over it uh, in, in one minute. Timing. Pick the timing of the mediation. Early intervention mediation is fine as long as the parties have command of the facts. Don't go into a mediation if you don't know uh, what the facts are. Generate options. Now, this looks like it's something uh, for the mediator to do, and surely it is. But it's also something that counsel should do with a client uh, before uh, the mediation. It's also something that will be discussed at the table uh, with all parties at the mediation and in private caucus at the mediation. Discuss worst case scenarios. Every uh, party in, in a mediation should know uh, that litigation is not a sure thing. The same with best case scenarios. Explore alternatives. Here is where creativity of counsel creativity of the mediator, and yes, even creativity of clients who may fashion their own settlements takes place. In order to do that, one must understand the risks of litigation, the strengths and weaknesses of each party's case, the nature of each party's actual interest, meaning their actual needs, uh, the delays and costs of litigation, and the consequences of not having a settlement, the real life business and family consequences of not having a settlement. Next slide, please. So I've, I've pretty much covered this in, in the prior slide. As I said, um, it's very important to at least execute a term sheet at the conclusion of the mediation session. As a mediator, I often discuss um, a deadline for completing the um, final settlement agreement between the parties and 
after the mediation, I will monitor um, um, the completion of that agreement to make sure it's not um, too, too delayed. Uh, sometimes it's um, helpful for parties in, in a bankruptcy case or adversary to ask the court for a status conference and put the agreement on the record, especially if the um, deadlines um, are, um, are looming for a resumption of the uh, litigation. And finally, again, if an estate representative is a party to the um, to mediation, it could be a Chapter 7 trustee, a debtor in possession in a 11 or um, a Chapter 13 debtor. Usually, um, 9019 must um, be complied with and approval of the settlement agreement after notice will be um, required. That's it. So, so I know we have at least one question that came in. I know we're up against the time. David, do you want to uh, get to the question or? Um... Yeah, that, I think that will work. I mean, we're looking at our tips and, 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 and traps here. And I think that our question from the audience fits nicely with this. Just um, throw that out to all three of you. Give me a, a typical hypothetical that a mediator might address and how they would address it in a consumer bankruptcy case? Well, you might have a client who walks out of the mediation and, um, um, and, and appears to be un, uh, unreasonable um, and, and doesn't want to go forward. They, um, they are um, overly invested emotionally or um, are having some problem with even being in the same room as, as the other side. And, and what I do in, in that case is um, I will have a separate session with that client and, and counsel and I will listen in an empathetic way and, and try to understand what the person's problem is explain the expectations that I have um, with, with everybody um, of being civil and, and then explain the risk of walking away um, and, and not reaching an agreement um, that day. The, the most important thing to do when you have an unreasonable party is, is, is listen and, and try to um, get them to understand that settling is in their best interests as opposed to continuing litigation. Yeah, and just building on that, I can imagine, for example, a situation where emotions might be running high in a consumer case could be a non-dischargeability action where there is a relationship there. Um, what, how is that solved? I mean, is that, that, that's, that's the one hypothetical that I was going to come up with, David. So right. it's a great segue, and I know we only have about 30 seconds. Um, collectability. The creditor who comes in with a $100,000 claim and the debtor, uh, even if, if denied a discharge, would never be able to pay a penny of that because... As a contractor, he's a failure and an alcoholic. Um, so there has to be some understanding of the realities of collection, even if one were 
uh, to prevail. And sometimes you can fashion a mediated settlement which will deal with uh, uh, giving the creditor something uh, to save face and allowing the debtor uh, uh, to, to proceed uh, because discharge and dischargeability are very, very difficult in consumer cases where there are no assets and there are to be no assets in the future. And I would imagine as well that the if it is a Chapter 7, the Chapter 7 trustee is not necessarily part of that mediation and those estate assets are not necessarily uh, potential sources of uh, settlement. Uh, they, they are not. Uh, they may be, at best, potential por uh, sources of, of, of partial settlement according to Perry Pursue uh, distribution. And that's it. The main problem that I see, um, and, and this is an excellent question, is that parties and counsel continue to argue about who's right and who's wrong. As mm. mediator, you've got to stop them with the blame game. And, um, and, and through your listening and probative questions, get, getting them to um, understand that walking away is not going to serve their interests. And litigation is not going to serve their interests because they might even get a judgment and they'll be no farther ahead. David, I would just say we have a lot more to discuss. This is unfair to ask uh, the co-panelists and me to, to do this in one hour, but we were pleased to do it. We hope that we've uh, enticed folks to come back for the longer session. It's an excellent question. Hopefully we can drill down further into other topics as well next month. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to our panelists on behalf of the Boston Bar Association for, for the hour. And um, yes, we hope to see all the attendees return on October 20th, where we will, I'm sure, be delving into uh, hypotheticals like the one we just uh, began to touch. So thank you to everyone and uh, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.